Chapter Thirty Seven, Part Two of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirsten Ferreri. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon, Volume Three, Chapter Thirty Seven: Conversion of the Barbarians to Christianity, Part Two. Pleasure and guilt are synonymous terms in the language of the monks, and they discovered by experience that rigid fasts and abstemious diet are the most effectual preservatives against the impure desires of the flesh. The rules of abstinence which they imposed or practiced were not uniform or perpetual. The cheerful festival of the Pentecost was balanced by the extraordinary mortification of Lent. The fervor of new monasteries was insensibly relaxed, and the voracious appetite of the Gauls could not imitate the patient and temperate virtue of the Egyptians. The disciples of Antony and Pacomius were satisfied with their daily pittance, of twelve ounces of bread, or rather biscuit, which they divided into two frugal repasts of the afternoon and of the evening. It was esteemed a merit, and almost a duty, to abstain from the boiled vegetables which were provided for the refectory. But the extraordinary bounty of the abbot sometimes indulged them with the luxury of cheese, fruit salad, and the small dried fish of the Nile. A more ample latitude of sea and river fish was gradually allowed or assumed, but the use of flesh was long confined to the sick or travellers, and when it gradually prevailed in the less rigid monasteries of Europe, a singular distinction was introduced, as if birds, whether wild or domestic, had been less profane than the grosser animals of the field. Water was the pure and innocent beverage of the primitive monks, and the founder of the Benedictines regrets the daily portion of half a pint of wine which had been extorted from him by the intemperance of the age. Such an allowance might easily be supplied by the vineyards of Italy, and his victorious disciples, who passed the Alps, the Rhine, and the Baltic, required in place of wine an adequate compensation of strong beer or cider. The candidate who aspired to the virtue of evangelical poverty abjured at his first entrance into a regular community the idea and even the name of all separate or exclusive possessions. The brethren were supported by their manual labor, and the duty of labor was strenuously recommended as a penance, as an exercise, and as the most laudable means of securing their daily subsistence. The garden and fields, which the industry of the monks had often rescued from the forest or the morass, were diligently cultivated by their hands. They performed without reluctance the menial offices of slaves and domestics, and the several trades that were necessary to provide their habits, their utensils, and their lodging were exercised within the precincts of the great monasteries. The monastic studies have tended for the most part to darken rather than to dispel the cloud of superstition. Yet the curiosity or zeal of some learned solitaries has cultivated the ecclesiastical and even the profane sciences, and posterity must gratefully acknowledge that the monuments of Greek and Roman literature have been preserved and multiplied by their indefatigable pens. But the more humble industry of the monks, especially in Egypt, was contented with the silent, sedentary occupation of making wooden sandals, or of twisting the leaves of the palm-tree into mats and blankets. The superfluous stock, which was not consumed in domestic use, supplied by trade the wants of the community. The boats of Taban, and the other monasteries of Thebais, descended the Nile as far as Alexandria, and in a Christian market the sanctity of the workmen might enhance the intrinsic value of the work. 
but the necessity of manual labor was insensibly superseded. The novice was tempted to bestow his fortune on the saints, in whose society he was resolved to spend the remainder of his life, and the pernicious indulgence of the laws permitted him to receive for their use any future accessions of legacy or inheritance. Melania contributed her plate, three hundred pounds weight of silver, and Paula contracted an immense debt for the relief of their favorite monks, who kindly imparted the merits of their prayers and penance to a rich and liberal sinner. Time continually increased, and accidents could seldom diminish the estates of the popular monasteries, which spread over the adjacent country and cities, and in the first century of their institution the infidel Zosimus had maliciously observed that, for the benefit of the poor, the Christian monks had reduced a great part of mankind to a state of beggary. As long as they maintained their original fervor, they approved themselves, however, the faithful and benevolent stewards of the charity which was entrusted to their care but their discipline was corrupted by prosperity. They gradually assumed the pride of wealth, and at last indulged the luxury of expense. Their public luxury might be excused by the magnificence of religious worship, and the decent motive of erecting durable habitations for an immortal society. But every age of the Church has accused the licentiousness of the degenerate monks, who no longer remembered the object of their institution, embraced the vain and sensual pleasures of the world which they had renounced, and scandalously abused the riches which had been acquired by the austere virtues of their founders. Their natural descent, from such painful and dangerous virtue to the common vices of humanity, will not, perhaps, excite much grief or indignation in the mind of a philosopher." The lives of the primitive monks were consumed in penance and solitude, undisturbed by the various occupations which fill the time, and exercise the faculties of reasonable, active, and social beings. Whenever they were permitted to step beyond the precincts of the monastery, two jealous companions were the mutual guards and spies of each other's actions, and after their return they were condemned to forget, or at least to suppress, whatever they had seen and heard in the world. Strangers who professed the orthodox faith were hospitably entertained in a separate apartment, but their dangerous conversation was restricted to some chosen elders of approved discretion and fidelity. Except in their presence the monastic slave might not receive the visits of his friends or kindred, and it was deemed highly meritorious if he afflicted a tender sister or an aged parent by the obstinate refusal of a word or look. The monks themselves passed their lives without personal attachments, among a crowd which had been formed by accident, and was detained in the same prison by force or prejudice. Recluse fanatics have few ideas or sentiments to communicate. A special license of the abbot regulated the time and duration of their familiar visits, and at their silent meals they were enveloped in their cowls, inaccessible and almost invisible to each other. Study is the resource of solitude, but education had not prepared and qualified for any liberal studies the mechanics and peasants who filled the monastic communities. They might work— but the vanity of spiritual perfection was tempted to disdain the exercise of manual labor, and the industry must be faint and languid which is not excited by the sense of personal interest. According to their faith and zeal, they might employ the day, which they passed in their cells, either in vocal or mental prayer. They assembled in the evening, and they were awakened in the night for the public worship of the monastery. The precise moment was determined by the stars, which are seldom clouded in the serene sky of Egypt, and a rustic horn or trumpet, the signal of devotion, twice interrupted the vast silence of the desert. Even sleep, the last refuge of the unhappy, was rigorously measured. The vacant hours of the monk heavily rolled along without business or pleasure, and before the close of each day he had repeatedly accused the tedious progress of the sun. In this comfortless state superstition still pursued and tormented her wretched votaries. 
the repose which they had sought in the cloister was disturbed by a tardy repentance, profane doubts, and guilty desires, and while they considered each natural impulse as an unpardonable sin, they perpetually trembled on the edge of a flaming and bottomless abyss. From the painful struggles of disease and despair, these unhappy victims were sometimes relieved by madness or death, and in the sixth century a hospital was founded at Jerusalem for a small portion of the austere penitents, who were deprived of their senses. Their visions, before they attained this extreme and acknowledged term of frenzy, have afforded ample materials of supernatural history. It was their firm persuasion that the air which they breathed was peopled with invisible enemies, with innumerable demons who watched every occasion and assumed every form to terrify, and above all to tempt, their unguarded virtue. The imagination and even the senses were deceived by the illusions of distempered fanaticism, and the hermit, whose midnight prayer was oppressed by involuntary slumber, might easily confound the phantoms of horror or delight which had occupied his sleeping and his waking dreams. The monks were divided into two classes, the Knobites, who lived under a common and regular discipline, and the Anachorets, who indulged their unsocial independent fanaticism. The most devout or the most ambitious of the spiritual brethren renounced the convent, as they had renounced the world. The fervent monasteries of Egypt, Palestine, and Syria were surrounded by a lora, a distinct circle of solitary cells, and the extravagant penance of hermits was stimulated by applause and emulation. They sunk under the painful weight of crosses and chains, and their emaciated limbs were confined by collars, bracelets, gauntlets, and greaves of massy and rigid iron. All superfluous encumbrance of dress they contemptuously cast away, and some savage saints of both sexes have been admired whose naked bodies were only covered by their long hair. They aspired to reduce themselves to the rude and miserable state in which the human brute is scarcely distinguishable above his kindred animals, and the numerous sect of Anachorets derived their name from their humble practice of grazing in the fields of Mesopotamia with the common herd. They often usurped the den of some wild beast whom they affected to resemble. They buried themselves in some gloomy cavern which art or nature had scooped out of the rock, and the marble quarries of Thebaeus are still inscribed with the monuments of their penance. The most perfect hermits are supposed to have passed many days without food, many nights without sleep, and many years without speaking. And glorious was the man—I abuse that name—who contrived any cell or seat of a peculiar construction which might expose him, in the most inconvenient posture, to the inclemency of the seasons. Among these heroes of the monastic life, the name and genius of Simeon Stylites have been immortalized by the singular invention of an aerial penance. At the age of thirteen, the young Syrian deserted the profession of a shepherd and threw himself into an austere monastery. After a long and painful novitiate, in which Simeon was repeatedly saved from pious suicide, he established his residence on a mountain, about thirty or forty miles to the east of Antioch. Within the space of a mandra, or circle of stones, to which he had attached himself by a ponderous chain, he ascended a column, which was successively raised from the height of nine to that of sixty feet from the ground. In this last and lofty station, the Syrian Anachoret resisted the heat of thirty summers, and the cold of as many winters. Habit and exercise instructed him to maintain his dangerous situation without fear or giddiness, and successively to assume the different postures of devotion. He sometimes prayed in an erect attitude, with his outstretched arms in the figure of a cross, but his most familiar practice was that of bending his meagre skeleton from the forehead to the feet and a curious spectator, after numbering twelve hundred and forty-four repetitions, at length desisted from the endless account. The progress of an ulcer in his thigh might shorten, but it could not disturb the celestial life, 
and the patient hermit expired without descending from his column. A prince who should capriciously inflict such tortures would be deemed a tyrant, but it would surpass the power of a tyrant to impose a long and miserable existence on the reluctant victims of his cruelty. This voluntary martyrdom must have gradually destroyed the sensibility both of mind and body, nor can it be presumed that the fanatics who torment themselves are susceptible of any lively affection for the rest of mankind. A cruel, unfeeling temper has distinguished the monks of every age and country. Their stern indifference, which is seldom mollified by personal friendship, is inflamed by religious hatred, and their merciless zeal has strenuously administered the holy office of the Inquisition. The monastic saints, who excite only the contempt and pity of a philosopher, were respected and almost adored by the prince and people. Successive crowds of pilgrims from Gaul and India saluted the divine pillar of Simeon. The tribes of Saracens disputed in arms the honour of his benediction. The queens of Arabia and Persia gratefully confessed his supernatural virtue, and the angelic hermit was consulted by the younger Theodosius in the most important concerns of the church and state. His remains were transported from the mountain of Telenissa by a solemn procession of the patriarch, the master-general of the East, six bishops, twenty-one counts or tribunes, and six thousand soldiers, and Antioch revered his bones as her glorious ornament and impregnable defence. The fame of the apostles and martyrs was gradually eclipsed by those recent and popular anachorets. The Christian world fell prostrate before their shrines, and the miracles ascribed to their relics exceeded, at least in number and duration, the spiritual exploits of their lives. But the golden legend of their lives was embellished by the artful credulity of their interested brethren, and a believing age was easily persuaded that the slightest caprice of an Egyptian or Assyrian monk had been sufficient to interrupt the eternal laws of the universe. The favourites of heaven were accustomed to cure inveterate diseases with a touch, a word, or a distant message, and to expel the most obstinate demons from the souls or bodies which they possessed. They familiarly accosted, imperiously commanded, the lions and serpents of the desert, infused vegetation into a sapless trunk, suspended iron on the surface of the water, passed the Nile on the back of a crocodile, and refreshed themselves in a fiery furnace. These extravagant tales, which display the fiction without the genius of poetry, have seriously affected the reason, the faith, and the morals of Christians. Their credulity debased and vitiated the faculties of the mind. They corrupted the evidence of history, and superstition gradually extinguished the hostile light of philosophy and science. Every mode of religious worship which had been practised by the saints, every mysterious doctrine which they believed, was fortified by the sanction of divine revelation, and all the manly virtues were oppressed by the servile and pusillanimous reign of the monks. If it be possible to measure the interval between the philosophic writings of Cicero and the sacred legend of Theodoret, between the character of Cato and that of Simeon, we appreciate the memorable revolution which was accomplished in the Roman Empire within a period of five hundred years. The progress of Christianity has been marked by two glorious and decisive victories, over the learned and luxurious citizens of the Roman Empire, and over the warlike barbarians of Scythia and Germany, who subverted the empire and embraced the religion of the Romans. The Goths were the foremost of these savage proselytes, and the nation was indebted for its conversion to a countryman, or at least to a subject worthy to be ranked among the inventors of useful arts, who have deserved the remembrance and gratitude of posterity. A great number of Roman provincials had been led into captivity by the Gothic bands, who ravaged Asia in the time of Gallienus, and of these captives many were Christians, and several belonged to the ecclesiastical order. These involuntary missionaries, dispersed as slaves in the villages of Decia, successively laboured for the salvation of their masters. 
the seeds which they planted of the evangelic doctrine were gradually propagated, and before the end of a century the pious work was achieved by the labors of Ulphilus, whose ancestors had been transported beyond the Danube for a small town of Cappadocia. Ulphilus, the bishop and apostle of the Goths, acquired their love and reverence by his blameless life and indefatigable zeal, and they received, with implicit confidence, the doctrines of truth and virtue which he preached and practiced. He executed the arduous task of translating the scriptures into their native tongue, a dialect of the German or Teutonic language, but he prudently suppressed the four books of kings, as they might tend to irritate the fierce and sanguinary spirit of the barbarians. The rude, imperfect idiom of soldiers and shepherds so ill-qualified to communicate any spiritual ideas was improved and modulated by his genius. And Ulphilus, before he could frame his version, was obliged to compose a new alphabet of twenty-four letters, four of which he invented, to express the peculiar sounds that were unknown to the Greek and Latin pronunciation. But the prosperous state of the Gothic church was soon afflicted by war and intestine discord, and the chieftains were divided by religion as well as by interest. Fritern, the friend of the Romans, became the proselyte of Ulphilus, while the haughty soul of Athenaric disdained the yoke of the empire and of the gospel. The faith of the new converts was tried by the persecution which he excited. A wagon, bearing aloft the shapeless image of Thor, perhaps, or of Woden, was conducted in solemn procession through the streets of the camp. And the rebels, who refused to worship the god of their fathers, were immediately burnt, with their tents and families. The character of Ulphilus recommended him to the esteem of the eastern court, where he twice appeared as a minister of peace. He pleaded the case of the distressed Goths, who implored the protection of Valens, and the name of Moses was applied to this spiritual guide, conducted his people through the deep waters of the Danube to the land of promise. The devout shepherds, who were attached to his person and tractable to his voice, acquiesced in their settlement, at the foot of the Macian mountains, in a country of woodlands and pastures, which supported their flocks and herds, and enabled them to purchase the corn and wine of the more plentiful provinces. These harmless barbarians multiplied in obscure peace and the profession of Christianity. Their fiercer brethren, the formidable Visigoths, universally adopted the religion of the Romans, with whom they maintained a perpetual intercourse of war, of friendship, or of conquest. In their long and victorious march from the Danube to the Atlantic Ocean, they converted their allies, they educated the rising generation, and the devotion which reigned in the camp of Alaric or the court of Thalos might edify or disgrace the palaces of Rome and Constantinople. During the same period Christianity was raised by almost all the barbarians, who established their kingdoms on the ruins of the Western Empire, the Burgundians in Gaul, the Suevi in Spain, the Vandals in Africa, and the Ostrogoths in Pannonia, and the various bands of mercenaries that raised Oadacer to the throne of Italy. The Franks and the Saxons still persevered in the errors of paganism, but the Franks obtained the monarchy of Gaul by their submission to the example of Clovis, and the Saxon conquerors of Britain were reclaimed from their savage superstition by the missionaries of Rome. These barbarian proselytes displayed an ardent and successful zeal in the propagation of the faith. The Merovingian kings and their successors, Charlemagne and the Othos, extended by their laws and victories the dominion of the cross. England produced the apostle of Germany, and the evangelic light was gradually diffused from the neighborhood of the Rhine to the nations of the Elbe, the Vistula, and the Baltic. End of chapter 37, part 2